Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact, but so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back, uh, Punky Fusters. It's great to have you on the few podcast again with me, Boo, and the ever youthful, ever enigmatic superhero superstar, Shawnee Sean Sewell. Hey, Sean, how are you, mate? Great, mate. The uh, intros are getting better, so I like how you've been practicing that. So I appreciate that a lot. That's awesome. No, mate, that's, that's all freestyle. <laughs> that's freestyle intro right there. Uh, hey, uh, I've got a question, though. We talk about the few, talk about people living their own versions of success. And I was wondering the last week or so, do you reckon Elon Musk still counts as one of the, one of the few, or has he just gone too far off the reservation? I'd say that he's he. there must be a different category. I think there's Elon Musk and then the few that, that sit below that. I think he's just... Literally off into space somewhere else that just can't compare with everyone else. <laughs> I think it was, uh, you know, you're in a different stratosphere of life when you, you tweet to people, private citizens, how much tax you should pay rather than the government tell you that. I think that's kind of massively wrong. Anyways, we digress. Let's, let's get back into the real people living their real dreams, uh, their own versions of, of success. Today, I'm really excited about this uh, this podcast. I spoke to our guest a few weeks ago. Performance is my is my bag, baby. I love it. I think you know, if you want anything in life, you've got to perform. There's no way to get around it. You've got some ideas on performance too, don't you, Sean? I do, mate. Uh, depends what type of performance you're talking about, but absolutely. No. What's that? We just blew 15 minutes talking about uh, part yeah, of the guitars and the, and the singing. And, I know, and our guest is a bit of a talented musician, I believe, as well. So, um, but let's, uh, let's, let's get stuck in, mate. Let's get stuck in. It's not about us, it's about our guests. No, it is about our guests. And we've got Dr. Gemma, Gemma Munro, on the few podcasts today. Hi, Gemma. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Boo. Hi, Sean. It's a real pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Great to have you on board. So, um, I have to start off with it. Looking into your background info and having a bit of a deep dive into what you stand for, what you speak about, you know, the, the public speaking you do and the support and education and what you, all those things, it came up with a reference to the Rolling Stones. Now, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that story because that one piqued my interest. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> it really was one of those cases where I thought, ah, oh, I haven't had a really interesting gig in a while. So just so you know, probably one of the first brave choices I ever made. And that's one of my keynotes is on making brave choices was when I was six and my mum said, do you want to go to choir? And I, as a shy person, went, no, 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 no. And the very last minute I went, yes. And that opened up basically half of my life being about musical performance. So I, it's not a very cool musical performance story in that I've sung in really fabulous places like Westminster Abbey and Radio City Music Hall and Norwich Cathedral and St Martin in the Fields, but it's been very nerdy choral folk music. But I, I hadn't done one of those uber cool performances that leaves you buzzing in a while. And I just thought, ah, oh, that would be great to do one of those again. And literally within a day, the phone rang and it was Carl Crossan, who's one of the most wonderful, amazing, best conductor in Australia. He went, hey, Jem, do you want to sing with the Rolling Stones? (laughs) I went, 
is a bean green. Yes, <laughs> of course I do. And so we were brought on, it was their stadium show. We were brought on to be, I think we were 12 backing vocalists for You Can't Always Get What You Want, which was their encore. And I, I speak for a living. I speak to big audiences, but I can tell you what, when you're about to sing to 53,000 people and Mick Jagger's that far away from you, you do think you're going to pee your pants. <laughs> Luckily I didn't and made through. And it really was one of those highlight moments, very almost heart stopping, but I did get through it and I loved it. That is incredible. That What a story. <laughs> one of those things, isn't it, that really highlights that concept of energy. Like there's a palpable, yes. palpable energy with a lot of people in a room that we just need to harness and understand. I think we, we, we too often play down that whole concept, but the energy at that moment in that room between you, Mick, the, the crowd, the other backup singers, that just must have been surreal. Oh, it, it's, it is. See, it's indescribable. I use words for a living and I have no words. But it's why I'm one of those um, weird speakers who quite likes giving keynotes on Zoom. A lot of speakers don't. But you do then go back to the now that we're coming out of, of COVID, you go back to the library and you go, oh, yeah. That's where it is because you can bounce off that energy and then interact with it and, and think on your feet and change what you're going to say because you're reading the room. And I find that intensely rewarding. Absolutely. And I've definitely seen that in you know, obviously uh, all three of us uh, in the speaking game and, and running events and things like that. It's been a bit challenging over the last you know, 18 months or so. And I've definitely found the same thing. You know, we managed in December to get my group of like about 120 business owners to back together for the first time since COVID had happened. We haven't managed to get them back together since, but the difference in energy and the, the lift by having everyone in the same place. And as you say, when I'm standing in front of an audience, it I lift because of that being able to adapt to reading the people in the audience and responding to that that energy and clearly uh, speaking to 120 or 500 people that are uh, you know doing a keynote or a, an event like that is not the same as singing with the Rolling Stones so uh, you know you've definitely got one up on us there so uh, that, that's awesome <laughs> there's always so, time Sean there's always time there's always time yeah you know, I could see well, not, yeah, not that much time in the, not that much yeah, time I think one of them rolling. one of them is not here anymore so maybe I'll take on the drumming role so or something I don't know but they've had an incredibly incredibly lengthy successful inspirational career so it's it's uh, you know it's amazing to see how they've had that level of longevity you know as a business. I mean, it's a band, but it's also, it's also a business. It also requires management, it requires leadership, it requires collaboration, it requires difficult conversations. And it doesn't matter what it is, it goes to relationships. And, you know, having been in a band for 13 years of my life as well in the past, we went through, I think, eight different members in that 13 years. And that's because people didn't get on. They weren't values aligned. They weren't, didn't stand for the same things. And whether you're in a band or a, a business or a community group or whatever, I think the dynamics are the same and it comes down to things like leadership and values and all that sort of stuff. And I know that you actually speak a lot about leadership and also about balancing the, the percentages when it comes to to women in leadership. Maybe um, give us a little bit of background. Why are you passionate about that? What's driving you to, to sort of invest into that area? Yeah, well... <sighs> I guess there's two questions. There's the background and then the what's driving me. The, the background, very briefly, if I can sum it up, I went from academia to and doing a PhD in performance psychology because I've always been fascinated by success and fulfilment and performance and how those three things link together. Uh, for my sins, I realised that academia, academics are talking to other academics 
And I wanted to make an impact in the world. So for my sins, I got into executive recruitment for a few years and then in management consulting, which was six very stressful years, some of which were spent crying in the toilets at work. But it was an MBA. It was a six-year-long MBA on how to get work done quickly, how to please clients, how to present, how to structure your language. I'm so grateful for it. But as I was doing that, I was, I was pregnant with my second child, Abigail, and she was only given a 40% chance of survival in utero. And I actually had operations on her in me. So you never want to be known by the hospital. It was, it was pretty full on situation. So all through the pregnancy, knowing she only had a 40% chance of making it, I found myself at the funeral of a two-year-old boy who was the nephew of a very dear friend of mine, and he drowned in an accident. And there was that moment of life is too short to be doing what you're good at as opposed to what you could be great at. And life is too short to be working 16, 17-hour days every day. And life is too short to not be going towards what it is you think you are here to do by being who it is you think you are here to be. And so at that stage, I, I started inkling. I'd also been working with a lot of women who were saying, I can't see a path for me up here. It seems too stressful. I'm not interested. And I thought, well, we have to change this. So I had eight years um, of my first business, which was a complete ride and turned into a multi-million dollar business. And was we were working with Google and PayPal all around the world. But then I realized that, oh my gosh, I have to practice what I preach and make some brave choices because it's not in alignment with who I am anymore. It had become the consulting firm that I had stepped away from, but also I was ready for new challenges. We, it had become a, a very operationalized, wonderfully run business where it was about processes and procedures as opposed to creating new content, and I'm here to create. So I stepped away, and I stepped away also because, and this goes to what's driving me and why leadership is important to me, I kept seeing over a few years, I kept seeing everyone I worked with as this beautiful shining lamp. The light was always on, but over the years, they'd added or life had added blankets over the light. And the blankets were limiting behaviors, expectations, chasing other people's dreams, beliefs that weren't actually true. And I became really passionate about helping people to rediscover that light to give them the tools to shed those blankets that are in the way of that natural spark and then to shine so brightly that they spark the light in others. And in terms of leadership, I realized that you're talking about organizations and how they function, how the Rolling Stones does exactly that. <laughs> I realized that you can create all the culture change programs you want. You can look at changing an organization, changing the systems, but actually what an organization is, is its people. And what you actually need to do, I believe, to create change organizationally and to create a well-functioning organization is to help spark that light in others because then they spark the light in others beyond that and there's a ripple effect. And so I guess my role is actually throwing a few metaphorical stones into a few metaphorical ponds and the rest takes care of itself. You're in the field of performance, which is ironic, given that you started in the field of performance, but it was a different type of performance. I guess there's a, a paradox when it comes to rock stars and those labels, because as a performer and on stage as an entertainer, there's a lot of commonalities, isn't there, in, in terms of what you need to believe and what you need to do and showing up. Yeah. The same way that 
a business leader does, except obviously the CEO can't have a bottle of Jack Daniels and cocaine all over the table like a rock star. So what are, the, what are some of the parallels that you've seen between your life and journey as a performer yeah. and what it takes to perform inside an organisation, whether you're a leader, a team member, or just an individual trying to get their own uh, boxes ticked? Yeah, uh, Boo, that is a phenomenal question and I think we could fill probably two whole podcasts with the answer. But what springs to mind is a few things. Firstly, when you are engaging with your audience as a performer, you are fully present and you are there to give everything. I think Patti Lapone once said, I've got it, now I'm giving it away. And I actually think the same is true of life. We are here to understand intimately what our strengths and talents are and then to give those away. And in doing that, we light people up a little or we make the world a slightly better place in whatever way is truest to us. Another parallel is as a a performer, you have to conquer fear regularly. So it's not a matter of going, oh, I just don't feel like getting up and performing today because you've got people who are there and they've paid the money and you are there to let your ego and your crap go so that you can get up on stage and give back to these people. And no matter what the fears or or self-limiting beliefs, because we all have them, even seasoned performers, we need to put them to one side and say, actually, I'm here for a reason and then just go fully into that reason. The final thing I would say on that is that as a performer, you know that your role is not to give the audience and this is with speaking and and singing and any kind of performance, it's not to give the audience one massive belt for an hour and a half. Your show has highs and lows and you take people on a journey. And I think as we're living our lives, we can shy away from the highs and lows. It's like, no, it has to be good all the time. I'm just, I'm going to avoid the lows. I'm going to avoid leaning into the discomfort. I'm going to avoid the sadness. But if you actually lean into life being a journey of ups and downs, you get a whole lot more out of it. And as a performer, when you do that for your audience, and I think a lot of speakers don't know the art of, of doing the ups and downs, your Gemma, audience gets I, uh, a whole lot refer, more. Gemma, I was referred to that as the light and shade. Like it's the light and the shade when it comes to music. And you see that in, in songs where they start off a bit slower and they build up. And, you know, whereas if you look at something like death metal, it's just, it's just on 11 in your face the entire time from start to finish. And that's just the the light like blinding you. But and you're right too is when it comes to whether it's performance, whether it's speaking, or whether it's leading, inspiring others, there has to be. And as humans, our psychology looks for differences. It doesn't look for things that are the same. It's like if you, you know, say to people, "Don't get your values and stick them up on the wall." You stick them up on the wall after the third time you've walked past, you'll now ignore them from then on. They need to be uh, dynamic and it needs to be movement. So our eyes are looking for our brain is looking for something different, not something that's the same. And I had had that conversation this morning with the CEO and he's like, yeah, we're customer centric. We we promote customer centricity. We've got posters all over the wall. But, you know, no one's customer centric. I don't understand it. Absolutely. And you have to ask the CEO, when's the last time you actually talked to a customer? Because usually it's not for a very long time. Um, And and I, I so agree with you that light and shade, Sean, the best live performance I have ever seen was given by Tim Minchin in his back tour. It was like life in a nutshell. So he'd make you laugh, he'd make you cry, he'd make you laugh so hard you're about to throw up. 
and it was all the shades in between. And, and I think in living a life and leading an organisation, we need to allow the shades of grey and also the highs and the lows and not try and make it either all grey, which a lot of organisations do. It's like, do you know what, let's just keep it safe here or not swing from high to low because you're wanting to keep it high. We actually need to allow those waves. Yeah, it's such an important part of the journey for what's a life journey, it's a business journey, it's a leadership journey, it doesn't matter what it is. It's that thing of being able to understand that the lows is what gives you the strength, the knowledge, the growth, that evolution to then have it the high at a higher level the next time. Absolutely. And one of the first guidelines I always set for any audience I speak to is to lean into discomfort and joy because it's through the discomfort that we grow, but the, it's through the joy that the, it's almost like if you allow me to, to get a little esoteric for a minute, I, I do believe the universe speaks to us in joy. It's like, that's the next step for you. That's the next step for you. So you need to lean into both, I think, to know what's next, to make great decisions and to get the most out of any experience as well as life in general. Gemma, with performance, one of the really interesting things I'm I'm finding in organisations and it plays to that grey a little bit is often bosses say the problem with this place is there's no consequence. It doesn't matter if people do a bad job. And that got me kind of reading and researching a little bit and, and really looking into the difference between need-based performance versus desire-based performance. Obviously, when you're singing and you're on stage, the consequence to poor performance there is extremely high and extremely personal. And it's great to be aspirational, right? And it's great to be positive and it's great to have all of these positive thoughts moving forward. But when it comes to driving to be successful, and, and I know in my life there was very much a need component to it, how important is need to performance relative to just wanting? Mm. I can honestly say I've never thought about that in my life. <laughs> <laughs> To me, wanting trumps need because you can need to perform and see it as something that's actually a threat, whereas when you want to perform, it becomes an opportunity. So, so want- let's, let's say we need, we need fire, water, shelter, food. We need yes. that. So that sits up at the top of our hierarchy of needs and then we move into the, you know, what do we desire? The only reason I talk about it is... Um, in really high performance environments like sport teams where the consequence is losing and it's painful they want to win but they need to win as, as well so it's, i'm just curious as to i guess the question is in organizational performance can you be too positive can you be uh, too yeah. aspirational that everyone gets a medal everyone gets a ribbon Absolutely. And I, I've seen that my, my kids are, um, I have to think because they have their birthdays at about this time of year, almost 11, almost 14. And they, there was a phase when they were in primary school where it was just, you get a medal and you get a medal and you get a medal. And we do need the pain of going, ah, I didn't do that well. But I guess what I'm saying here is that that pain becomes consequential to us when we want to achieve. So if we actually are wanting to do well, then what's happening is we're looking at how we can keep improving our performance. Whereas I think if it's purely need, then yes, we will do it, but we may not go the extra mile. I don't think it's all need or all want. And it's, no. it's that balance, right? That's what I'm interested in because then it becomes, well, what is the balance? Is it this? Is it four points of need and six points of desire today or maybe or does the universe just look out for it for you and it'll, it'll 
just when you're just when you're riding high, boom, something will come out yeah. of left field. And- <laughs> <laughs> That's been my experience, Boo. <laughs> I, I do think we're actually led on this this path of growth, um, and. That's how life works. It's expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction, and we move up to a, ne- a next level because we want it. But then at that next level, an old devil uh, comes up to bite us in the bum and we go, darn, I thought I dealt with you, and we deal with it then and then we keep going. <laughs> You're right. It is a balance. It's like we achieve the next level because we want it and then we need to address what's in our way to keep progressing. So you're right. It's absolutely a balance. And I think we've come up with an awesome Amazon best-selling model in the next, I don't know, two weeks. Boo, what do you reckon? <laughs> as long as we can collaborate, I don't have to do anything. That sounds like a <laughs> Just like on the podcast. Like a bad deal, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As they say, Boo, you're not, you're not even a pretty face. But uh, and, and I think I was going to touch on there, Jimmy. You said before the hot and and in the context of you know you get an award and you get an award and because you didn't get an award, I'm going to give you an award as well. And that's something that I've seen in being around the I was on the board of Montessori School in Sydney for about three and a half years when my kids went there, and they're about both of them are a year younger than your kids, so similar ages. And the one thing I learnt in understanding the methodology behind it, and it's not just Montessori, there's there's other models that do similar, Steiner and Learn Life and others like that, but the concept of rewarding the effort, not the outcome, because the outcome is a consequence of the effort. And the thing as from a leadership perspective, if we're rewarding people for what they're doing solely, then it's going to be hollow. So like, yeah, you, boo, and Gemma, you hit your sales targets, here's a voucher, Right. That's going to get old pretty quick. But if we actually focus on, and I want to get your view on this too, I believe if you focus on rewarding the person for who they are and how they're showing up, it's going to have a heck of a lot more impact than what just what they've achieved on its own. I couldn't agree more. And when I work with leaders, I will often help them to start drilling down into each of their people's strengths and aspirations and blocks to achieving their aspirations. And the goal here is to stretch our people and reward them and give them feedback for using their strengths, moving towards their aspirations and clearing their own blocks that are in the way of them achieving their aspirations to the point where as a leader, you become an architect for someone else's career. And there's nothing more rewarding than that. Looking back and going, I helped to shape this person and to, to give them this meaningful life and career. One thing I would add to that is that organizations as a whole are falling into the trap of it's almost a 1980s, 1990s mechanistic way of working. You need to do this, 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 almost factory line without looking at, is this the right task for you to be doing versus you? Is this the right task? Is it going to lead us towards our goals as a business and help us meet our values as a business? And what you're ending up with is, and I see this all the time, a lot of People in organizations are feeling like they're stuck on this hamster wheel of I get into work and there are 72 things on my to-do list and I'm in back-to-back meetings and I don't get to them and then I get home and I'm exhausted and then I go to Netflix or wine or Netflix and wine, get up, caffeinate, the list is growing to 128 things. And part of that is because organizations aren't actually taking a good look at what are the strengths and aspirations and blocks of each individual and are the things we are setting them and rewarding them for in line with who they are and where they want to go and where we want this organisation to go. But we've created chaos, though. That's this whole bullshit theory of, hey, freedom within a framework and you have all the time. 
Like I came from a world as a fighter pilot that was insanely structured, but at the same time, incredibly flexible because the world that you operated in was incredibly random and it just did stuff with our weapons, baddies, goodies, whatever, right? For me, I think we've fallen into this trap of allowing everyone to look at everything a different way. So every day, yeah, we have tasks now. We used to have procedures. We used to do the basic stuff the same way, not because we were slaves to the old process, because, hey, if everyone just does it this way, then we don't have to worry about it. It becomes an automatic program within our heads. That means all the time we waste doing basic stuff, we can put in a higher order thinking. I had this conversation with a, a huge company the other day, and we looked at a failed strategy over a year. And, and at the end of it, they're like, when you look at it like that, it's like we didn't even think about what we were doing. It's so obvious now. Why didn't we just stop and think about it? What do you think, Gemma? Is there... With automation and the flood of information now, are we, are we slowly losing the ability to think critically? I think we're losing the time to think critically. I think most people are overwhelmed, overloaded. So it's like, okay, I've just got to put one foot in front of the other. I'm not actually thinking about, is this the right step? And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I Even though I, I love flow and when I write and I speak, I'm in flow and I actually set two days a week for flow days where I don't have schedules, I don't have deadlines. I also set up my life to be incredibly routinized and ritualized. So I've got my morning routine. I've got my workday startup routine. I've got my evening routine so that my general manager, the wonderful Stacey Packer, always says that structure gives us freedom. So I do think that organizations need to do a better job of stepping back going, what are the, as you say, what are the basic tasks that need to get done to fuel this business, to fuel our people? Let's make that part and parcel of what we do. And then let's let people loose to actually think critically, to give of themselves, to contribute in a way that only they can in the organization. And that's what people are looking for. And they're leaving organizations in droves because they're not getting that opportunity for freedom and authenticity at work. I think that you're right there, the, the whole concept of structure to support that. And I used to, uh, I suppose, had this, uh, well, it's my ego. Let's just, let's just call it for what it is. My ego had this thing that's like, I got into business, so I don't have to be told to do anything, right? So I do anything whenever I want. doesn't work, right? And it took me many years to finally realize that I actually needed structure to create a foundation to build on top of. Without that, I was like free-falling and I could do anything whenever I wanted, yes. But without deliberate structure, without a deliberate direction, you know, things like a mission and a strategic plan and an execution framework and these things that say, okay, you need to do these things this week. But it's not saying you've got 10 hours a day allocated one minute at a time for the entire week. You've actually got... There's two hours of this that needs to be done. You know, you need to do this, it's going to take you about 90 minutes. You need to do that, it's going to take about an hour. Yeah, I can fit wherever I want in the week. It's, so it gives you a lot more, for me, what I found is a lot more, the, the outline or the, the border, the structure, the framework gives you a lot more fluidity to, as you said, have the critical, the critical thinking time. And I haven't actually heard it expressed like that before. That's actually, that it's a time issue. And I have to agree absolutely that most people are so busy with all the noise, whether it's, People can't go for like five seconds without, you know, if they've got to wait for a, the bus is pulling up, they'll, you know, swipe three times on Facebook before they get on the bus. They can't just stand there and wait for the bus to come. So if we're not opening up those opportunities to think, I think we're missing it. So Gemma, what do you think is uh, some ways where people could actually open up that creative space, that strategic thinking space more? 
Yeah, I, I've, I've got a few things that I do, and this has been trial and error over many years. And, and sometimes I still get it wrong where it's like, oh, I'm actually, I'm really in, in hustle and overdrive today and I need to move back into flow. And then sometimes I get lost in flow. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I need the structures and I actually see them as an infinity loop. You can't have one without the other. But for me, there are, there are a couple of things that really work. One is I have non-negotiable balcony time as in stepping up off the balcony every day. On Monday, I have usually an hour and a half in the morning and I've got set questions I ask myself like, what's going well? What's not going well? Am I playing to my strengths? Where am I at with my vision? What are the next steps I can do this week? What am I doing that's getting in the way? How, do, how can I address that? And then I'll have balcony time about half an hour to an hour at the start of each day. Again, just to have a, an, a look at the uh, whole day. And I set myself some, um, I actually call it thought leader time, which is possibly a little naff, but it's, it's to explore what are my thoughts on things and to have that critical thinking time. That's made a huge difference. The other thing is carving out space to listen to that small, still voice within. And for me, that is meditation. I meditate each morning. I also have breaks interspersed throughout the day where I'll go outside, I'll be in nature, I'll water my veggies. We, we make the mistake of thinking it's, it's not linked to performance. It is fundamentally linked to performance to have that space to listen to that small still voice because that small still voice when you're away from the the beta brain waves which are all about fight flight what's wrong what do i need to do and you move into those alpha brain waves which are about what are the possibilities how can i be creative here you actually start to hear things that help you move to your next level of success and fulfillment and even in listening to the small still voice i literally woke up one morning and the small, still voice said, get yourself to Patch Kitchen and Garden, which is a restaurant here in the Adelaide Hills. I was like, oh, I don't want to, I've got to do laundry. But I got used to listening to it. So I went to Patch and I had lunch and there was my current partner of three years because the small, still voice had said, here's the next step. And I went, okay, I better go do it. Those inner voices are so important. I remember when I used to uh, just have that moment and it'd be like 10 in the morning and you'd be like, oh man, this is not, it's just not group happening today. Not happening. And you'd push through and you'd sit there and you'd procrastinate, you'd faff. Whereas now I just walk away, just walk away, do something, just do something irrelevant. And if that turns into a whole day of nothing for me, it's like the way French eat food, right? Like because the food is so rich and so tasty and so full of fats that you just cannot eat it the next day. It's just too much. And I think performance can be a bit like that. Well, hang on, let me flip that around. What would you say to leaders who value FaceTime performance, who, who believe that you have to be in the room for me to, as a leader to pull a lever? My expectation is for you to be here and be available all the time. What's your advice for someone like uh, that? I would have to read that person to formulate how I would give the advice, but the essential message would be that's BS. And well, look, at, uh, look, look what's happening. It's it's post-COVID and, and this big cultural revolution of working from home is starting to be rapidly nullified. More and more organisations are saying you've got to be back in the office. One of the reasons I do what I do and I continue to work in corporates is that organisations will start to crumble if they don't make fundamental shifts in how they lead their people and in making sure their people get to work feeling lit up and have opportunities to be lit up within the workplace. And I think saying to people, 
you need to be at my beck and call. I need to be able to see you, to trust you. I'm going to fill up your calendar with back-to-back meetings all day. So any work you have to do will be after you've put the kids to bed or you've had dinner and your brain is exhausted anyway. It's a recipe for disaster, as my dear mother used to say when we were doing things that were naughty when we were children. It doesn't work. Not only does it not work, it's going to drive your people away. So for those who are insisting on FaceTime performance, I would be gently but firmly coaching them to look at their own beliefs around that, their own trust in themselves to do the work when they say they will, and what's getting in the way of them trusting their people. And I'd be delving into that in in a well, let's, let's be straight up, Gemma. Like I've worked with a lot of corporate, you've worked with a lot of corporates. Your whole concept wouldn't exist if corporates weren't doing things like be there, FaceTime, be grey. It's endemic in groups of large people. Like, why does it just this way of thinking and doing things become so ingrained? Like, what is it about human humanity that drives this grey herd behaviour? I would very much point to Bandura's social learning theory. And I've seen this so much. I've seen, I've, I've worked with spunky, amazing people who then get thrust into a leadership role and we go, oh, that's how leadership is done. So do you know what? I'm going to button myself down and veneer myself off and become what I think a leader is because we learn by watching others. And we've inherited this system of leadership and of running organisations that started with the Industrial Revolution, went through to factory work, and and now we're still imitating the, the 1980s and 1990s, push, 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 hustle, 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 force, force, force. We haven't been given an alternative. And at the moment, if we know it's not working, we don't have the space to consider what an alternative would look like. So I think part of the work I do in corporates, um, and I do work with entrepreneurs as well, is to provide them that space and give them those tools to create micro and macro mindset shifts and behavior shifts to completely overhaul how leadership and life and work get done. Because if we keep going like this, we are going nowhere fast. And I have to agree that. And I think the a big element of that that I see, Boo, as well is the it's an element of control. If you can see people and they're in there, you can control what they're doing. You can make sure they're sitting at their desk at the right time. They're getting there on time. They're starting. They're stopping. To me, there's an element of that fear that if you let go and give people the opportunity to actually step up and a lot of people will take the piss don't get me wrong some people will and and the thing is what you're saying too Gemma is goes back to what we talked about in the earlier in the piece that performance that oh that's how a leader is supposed to act so I need to I need to show up and pretend like that's who I am to be a good leader and it's such a big mistake and I see this as well in because my focus is small to medium business not so much the corporates but it's the same it's still a people game and the thing is it exists, and but as as a leader, we need to show up as us. Now, if someone doesn't like us as a leader, as but being authentically us, then they should bugger off, and someone else can come along, right? But if we put on this act, no one's going to know who the hell we are. Some people may like us, but we're actually liking the bit that we're putting on, and not the real bit. So, how how do you believe people can? make that step into being much more authentic in how they're showing up as a leader. It's, it's like that risk of when you're dating, when you're young and you're like, oh, mom, dad, you know, what am I going to do? And they're going, be yourself. And you're like, oh, who the fuck is that? Who's that? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I, I'd say a couple of things to, to that. 
question. First is there's an amazing quote by Danielle Laporte. She writes that well-roundedness is overrated. You'll always be too much of something for someone. You'll be too brash or too shy or too loud or too quiet. But when you round out your edges, you lose your edge. And I've seen so often that actually the things that we think are horrendous about ourselves that don't fit in with society are the things that give us our edge. I still remember getting feedback when I was working in management consulting of you're too passionate when you talk to be taken seriously. And I tried for six (laughs) months, I was like hammering out that passion, you know, I'm going to rock up as a tremendously serious management consultant. And then I realized, hang on, I'm not too passionate to speak. I'm too passionate for this workplace. And and I now ironically have a very serious speaking career around helping people with their passion and their purpose. So it's it's, it's amusing. But the second thing I would say is that, In finding your edge, often I'll ask people the question, if you had to take some kind of potion that made it impossible to be anything other than who you are at work, what are the, the three, one to three tweaks or changes we would see in the workplace if you rocked up more as yourself? Um, and it's amazing how as you become more of yourself, your followership, if you're a leader, uh, it grows and it's more engaged. And also your relationships become more trusting, which you pointed out, Sean, because whenever you meet someone who you know is not being fully themselves, the BS meter goes up, it's like ding, ding, ding. And uh, we don't trust that person. We don't want to work with them. We certainly don't share ourselves. So to me, authenticity is one of the keys in transforming leadership for the better. And I run a process with my clients that I work with, the leader, to define that, to actually define it, who you actually aspire to be, not who you are now. So it's defining as a leader, who are you aspiring to be? Not like Joe Bloggs down the road or this person who's really obnoxious, you. What do you want someone to say at your eulogy at your funeral in 20, 30, 50 years time, whatever it is? What would you like somebody to say about you? Oh, I was a bit of a clown. I had crap dad jokes or, you know, it was always there, generous, humble, really authentic and how to show it up and helped a lot of people. Like, what is it that, and it's just, again, there's a skin that you wear in all situations. It's, it's, it's just you expressing yourself fully. Yeah, it, it's you fully bear. And I do think the deathbed test is a wonderful one. You might've read the book, The Top Regrets of the Dying by Palliative Care Nurse, Bronnie Ware. And the, the number one regret is not living a life that's true to who you are. Mm. And I do think that's why I do what I do. That's how I do what I do. And that's I, I encourage people to think about that. So I think that eulogy example is, is really phenomenal. The only thing I'd add here is sometimes when we go to set what is my ideal version of myself, we end up thinking about what is society's ideal version of me? You know, I I don't a yacht and I do this and actually it doesn't matter to us. And I always think about my friend, Hannah, I'll call her that because that is her name. She's a diplomat. And when people meet her, they think, my gosh, it's like I've been touched by an angel. And I've got a snowball's chance in hell of achieving that. That's not that's not the effect I have on others. That's not my ideal self. But can I challenge people and motivate people and inspire people and give them a, a gentle but well-placed kick up the bum sometimes? Yes, I can do that. So I think as long as we're situating that ideal self in actually who am I and who do I want to be deep down as opposed to what I think others want me to be, then it's a fabulous question to ask. I think, I think we're uh, kindred spirits. I mean, for me, my entire life, I've never given a shit what anyone's thought about me. Even school reunions, they're like, dude, you, you haven't changed. You do not care. So when you have that mindset, right, you don't end up 
worrying about, well, what, what do I want to be? And you just get busy doing stuff, right? You're just like, oh, that looks like an interesting thing. I was talking to a gentleman this morning about, it's like, oh, what, I've got no leadership capability in my business, 90 people, what's some really basic leadership skills you could help us with? And I'm like, well, be selfless and maybe do stuff that's purposeful, like do stuff that has a reason behind it and just start there. Like, oh, but what about personalities? And, I'm like, and you just sort of kind of set it, guys. It's like personalities are relevant. It doesn't matter whether you're introverted or extroverted. None of that matters. Like if you're well-intentioned and you care about other people, people are going to get on board with you. They're going to trust you. And, and when they trust you, everything's going to accelerate. So why do we manufacture so many complex – like the, the, the international leadership development industry is like a $250 billion industry. Yeah. It's so damn hard. Because we like to make things complex. It distracts us from the real task of getting to know who we are and putting ourselves out there in the world. It's like, oh, let me just, yeah, let, let me just play with this intricate problem for a bit so I don't have to look at who I am and what I want and, and how I'm holding myself back. And we, we don't want to look at that because it's scary and it's uncomfortable, but it's only through looking at that that we can become who we're meant to be and we can maximise our potential. Absolutely. That's the most challenging part of the journey. It's, and you said it before, Gemma, I think we're kindred spirits when you said um, you're never going to be that one that's like touched by an angel, but you can kick people up the ass when they need it sometimes. Because in the past, I was told by a number of people, including one of my early mentors, that you're too direct. Your approach is too direct. You need to soften it and all that sort of stuff. Well, to my clients now, I'm known as the sledgehammer and they love it because no one else is going to call them on their bullshit. So that's my job. Song, mate, now when you get up on stage. (laughs) (laughs) Mind you, I mean, it has softened. The sledgehammer has softened over time because I've found other ways of communicating. But so, and we we touched on, and this is something that we touch on a lot in the the episodes of The Few, is purpose. You know, how important do you feel purpose is for you and for other people to really, you know, chase that down and bring that into, give them that intrinsic motivation? And your journey with purpose, Gemma, because obviously, from being in a choir and all of these, you, your purpose when you were 21 wasn't, hey, I'm going to be have a doctorate in psychology around performance and be on the speaker circuit. I don't think anyone, any speaker has that ambition when they start. So tell us about your, your journey, like your purposeful journey and how that can look like for people who struggle with yeah. not being in their purpose right now. Yeah. I still believe that purpose is everything, but I used to believe that it had to be very well defined and this is what it looks like. So you've got this beautifully packaged dream or vision and you've got 12 steps to get there. And I now know that's completely irrelevant. I think purpose is incredibly important, but I think it can be ill-defined. I think it can be, I want to feel this way. I want to make this kind of impact on everyone I meet because our purpose is actually lived out in every interaction, in every moment. And people used to come up with five year business plans or five-year personal growth plans, that's impossible now. Look back five years, there is no way I would have thought I would be out of my marriage in a wonderful new relationship, in a wonderful new business. My life was going in a certain direction, but in keeping on tuning into what's my purpose now, where are my values at, what's my next step for my growth, that leads us towards our purpose and it can be this beautiful, vague, dreamy, picture but as long as we've got that sense of my big why why i'm here what i want to give 
Uh, that's all we need. Doesn't need to be set out in stone because it's going to change multiple times every five years, if not every year. This is something that I reckon I've just picked up on the few, mate, is either everyone is divorced or <laughs> is single, <laughs> but in new and better relationships. There has been a very big theme. I did think that as you were saying that, Gemma, I'm like, okay, so this seems to be a common thread, but I have seen this where where people who have a very big focus on personal growth and development, we can, and I don't mean this in any negative way to past partners or wives, husbands, is that we're just different. We become different versions of, so when we meet someone, we're, we're some, so it's kind of aligned, but over time we can, there can be a, a gap created between who you are and who you're showing up is and what your values are versus another person. So there, they might change another direction or they may stay on the same path. And I found that, yeah, I have seen that a lot in people that have had quite dramatic growth and evolution within themselves and who they are and the impact that they're making, it quite often ends in them having to exit a long-term relationship and move move to find someone aligned with who they are at that point in time. You know, maybe you can speak to that. Yeah, I, that's exactly what happened. You know, I had a huge period of, of growth and awakening. And also I got married at 26. You know, who knows who they are at 26? I certainly didn't. I thought I knew. But I, I do think as we head to 40, Jung actually talks about how the first 40 years of our lives are about putting ourselves out into the world. And then we move more into looking at who we are and looking within. And as you start to look within, you have realizations like, I can't be who I am in this partnership. I'm not seen for who I am in this partnership. And I can't grow into who I want to be in this partnership. And I think if you're with someone and, and your partner is equally committed to growth and to growing their perceptions of you, I absolutely think it's doable. And I still think there are sometimes where your partner's growing and you're growing and you're just growing in different directions and it's hard and difficult, but you know that without letting go of the relationship, you will actually stay as who you are in a bud as opposed to blossoming. Absolutely agree. And my kid's mum, my ex, we had a discussion a few months ago and it was quite a, you know, it's quite an open discussion, quite, you know, amicable. And I mean, it has been very amicable anyway throughout the process, but the discussion was around the fact that both of us have identified, her included, that each of us have grown substantially since, you know, 18 months ago when we exited the relationship after 19, nearly 20 years, that both of us have seen a massive change in each other. And that both of us agree that we couldn't have had that had we stayed where we were. And we probably were in that for a number of years longer than was actually serving either of us or, or and even the kids, you know. And it was something that I was very happy to see that she'd realized that as well, that she'd had the opportunity to now grow, being on her own for a while and in her own new relationship and things like that. And, and likewise, that it was that chance to then more rapidly evolve again because that relationship had served each other to a point, but it's like, it was actually no longer serving either of us anymore or the family unit. We need to make a change. And whilst that's one of the hardest, you know, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, it was definitely the right thing. Absolutely. And I can see the positives of that, the benefits of that. And, and I think it's an old stigma around that says, if you marry someone, you've got to be with them for the rest of your, you know, till death do your part. So I think that's actually, maybe it's until you become people that aren't serving each other anymore. And then you respectfully give each other that opportunity to go and find the next person that can help them to evolve. 
people who are performance driven also need to be careful because of the nature of who we are for any anyone else as well, right? Like people haven't had your journey, Gemma. They haven't had yours, Sean. They haven't had that drive. They haven't had these this thing, this intangible that that sits there and therefore in terms of no yeah, you know, absolutely no one's perfect. I think with a performance mindset, there is a risk of leaving not just your your, your partners, but a lot of other people in the dust a little bit as well, just because of the, the different uh, relationships everyone has with fear, the different relationships they have with, with their personal growth journeys. And you know, it's, it's humanity, we've got to be respectful of that. Uh, so I think, I think there's an introspective piece here as well, which is, hey, you know, how do we manage that? How do you dial it down? And I find Gemma inside an organization, when you're working with the high performers and the, and the really effective, productive leadership, they've got a totally different problem set, but it's still a problem set compared to trying to motivate the rest of the rest of the group. I kind of call it the dark side of performance. Have you got any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I I take Sean's point and, and your point. For me, relationships are they're the biggest fuel for helping us understand and rub off the rough edges and like this beautiful mirror for, oh my gosh, here's a problem in me. Here's what I need to look at in me. So I don't think it's about being in a relationship um, and I'll get to the performance part in a bit, but being in a, in a relationship and going, oh, this isn't working for me anymore. It's too hard. I'm off. I think it's about, is this, for me, relationships need to have a beautiful blend of chemistry and friction. And the friction is to propel us to grow. And the chemistry is just to make it fun along the way. And if one or both of those things go, then it's the, that's the time for the relationship to end, not when we're not rubbing each other up the wrong way, because we always will. So I do think, back to your point, uh, Boo, around the dark side of performance, I think it can be a little bit, well, I've outgrown you, you know, I've outgrown this relationship, I've outgrown this organisation. And as you say, leaving people <laughs> in your wake as opposed to going, oh, this is really pushing my buttons. It's really triggering me. I can use that dark side of the coin of high performance and get out of here or I can use it to actually focus on what's this bringing up in me? How do I need to grow and staying the path until that lesson is learned? And when all the lessons are learned, then we move on. Absolutely. It's that highlighting the the other people, the mirror that or the light that sh- highlights the shadow in us and the bit that we need to start to shine some light on. And whether we like it or not, it's challenging. It's difficult. And being a, a uh, incredible relationship now for about seven months at the time of recording this, that's had lots of challenges along the way because there's a whole new set of mirrors that have popped up and I'm just going, oh shit, I thought I did all this work. Now there's all these new mirrors that are different angles that are coming up and all the edges of the diamond that are still rough that I couldn't see before, you know, and it's just like, okay, here we go again. Awesome. I know. Let's do and it. <laughs> also at the same time, you've got wounds from having left a marriage and it's, it's mm-hmm. just, uh, it's such hard work. And then you move from the honeymoon stage and you just go, oh yeah, right. Yeah. You, you do leave the lid off on the toothpaste and you are an annoying human as opposed to this angel sent from above. It's tough. I guess it's human nature, and I think for, for for where you see those really effective people that become leaders, where they they really start to fall down is they they end up with that frustration and resentment fermenting within their team. In that, can't you guys just lift and come along with me? And the team's like, "Where are you going?" Those sort of tensions that exist organizationally, I think, it is is an area where and it's that you kind of said it. Like 
you, there's never a win. You, you lift people up and their performance increases and, and they hit, the, they hit the, the jets and away they go. And then all of a sudden, oh, we just created another problem. Now we've got to bring it back down a bit and keep it. It's, it's this constant sine wave of that, that for me is this deep performance mindset, which is it's the mean of the sine wave that counts, not the sine wave itself. If you can have your ups and downs and lift it to be consistently above average rather than periodically above average. And I think that's where you see people like, you know, the Warren Buffetts of the world, the, the Tom Brady's, the Roger Federer's, these people that just, they don't win all the time, but they win just that little bit more than everyone else. And they have a more rounded life, a more selfless view, a view of the world. And sometimes people are born with that for the rest of us. I'm certainly not that selfless and not, I could never be a Roger Federer or patient like a Warren Buffett to be a billion dollar investor. I get too, too itchy, too much like itchy feet. So how did you find your swim lane then, Gemma? Because of it, people can say you can be anything, but you don't want to be anything. When, at which time did you go, I, I've got conviction in this. I'm in my lane now and now I'm really going to accelerate. What happened? Yeah, I, the, the consistent thing for me in finding my lane has been unapologetically understanding, honing and maximising my strengths. So I've had several epiphanies throughout my career that have all involved, oh, hang on, yeah, right, these are my strengths. So I, I still remember in management consulting, I was doing organizational redesigns and sales force effectiveness. And I did the Clifton Strengths. For those who haven't done that, it's highly worth the, I think, 29 Australian dollars investment. And I had my firstborn in a, a cot next to me. I, I remember the exact moment where I was looking at my strengths of developer and maximizer and activator and going, yeah, I don't think I'm meant to be redesigning sales forces. <laughs> um, I'm meant to be in leadership and people development. And when I came back from maternity leave, I said to my boss, can I transfer? Can I, can I do this as a, as a job now? And bless him, he said yes. And then that led to me working in leadership development. It led to me speaking uh, for a living. And then the other aha moment I had when it came to the strengths was when I knew it was time to sell my business that I'd, I'd created and, and was my baby because I, again, I couldn't play to my strengths of activator and, and creator and being strategic. So that the strengths in combination with there is this problem that I want to fix. So with my first business, it was around how do we lift the gender balance at leadership level? How do we drive that? It got to the stage where the programs I'd created, 60% of the women who did them would receive a promotion within six months because it was about measuring how we can actually fix that problem. And then now in my current speaking work and, and leadership programs, it's about how can we uplift entire teams, entire organisations by transfer, to transforming one individual, one heart and mind at a time. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that problem. So I use my strengths to solve problems that, that really get me motivated to get up in the morning. I think you're totally right. You have to do it one at a time. You can't just do the blanket. Here's a hundred people. Here's how you all need to be a leader. Go and lead and give us all our outcomes and make us hit our budget for the quarter. You know, like it doesn't work like that. So, oh no. And here's, here's the change program. Buy into it. It's yeah, great it. for the business. We're excited about it. So you <laughs> should be too, you know, like, yeah. Oh. So, but um, clearly you've had a, a, a colorful journey and lots of, you know, ups and downs and challenges and the roller coaster of life, business, all the rest of it. 
if you could take some of those lessons that you've learned over the years and go back to a younger version of yourself. So maybe the version of yourself that, you know, said yes to the choir, which is interesting because I did exactly the same thing in primary school when I was like scared crapless for some reason. I said yes at the last minute, got me into singing. But if you go back to that younger version of yourself or maybe a teenage version of yourself with some of the key lessons you've learned now, you know, now, what would you go back and, and teach yourself? Oh, so much. I would save myself a whole lot of pain. But funnily enough, of course, it's through the pain that we grow. But I, I would say probably a, a couple of things that seem paradoxical, but the definition of maturity is apparently being able to hold two competing positions at the same time. So on one hand, I'd be saying, do you know what? Just get on with it, honey. Like you're not that important. Research shows that people are thinking about us 50% less often than we think they're thinking about us. So stop over-worrying, over-thinking, over-analyzing what people are thinking of you, what you should be doing, what society expects of you, what your parents expect of you, and just get on with it. But at the same time, as well as saying you're not that important, I'd also be saying you are important and you've got things to do and say and contribute and you've got natural strengths and gifts and deep experience that actually makes you uniquely positioned to do what you are here to do. And I think that's the same for everyone. So hone in on that and unapologetically play to that. It's, I read a statistic somewhere once, 85% of people think they're in the top 25% of intellect inside their organisation. So. <laughs> Sounds about right. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organisation for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Hey, Gemma, thanks so much for taking the time to have a pretty wide-ranging conversation. This is the first, our first podcast we've dealt into our all our personal divorces and relationship failures, so, uh, which I think it's an important topic. I think we've got to go there. It's all it's all part of uh, the rich tapestry, uh, rich tapestry of life. So, thanks so much. I've got about eight more questions, but you know, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Thanks so much, Jill. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been the View Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The View Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.